Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Gabe Sibley, CEO and founder of Verdent Robotics, an autonomous agriculture company that raised $48 million in funding. Gabe, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, hey, Brent. Great to be here. Looking forward to speaking with you. Yeah, I am as well. So to kick things off, we just maybe start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. So let's see uh, how far back to go. I have been in mobile autonomous robotics for two and a half decades. So I started as a math computer science grad out of Emory University, moved to Southern California to be adjacent to JPL because it was sort of a dream to work at a place that was responsible for robotic exploration in the solar system. Kind of blown away that that could be a job you could get. I ended up doing a PhD at USC, fell in with a bunch of really clever folks and long story, ended up as a professor in computer science at University of Colorado Boulder. And all this technology that we've been working on for many, many years turned out to be really valuable, especially for things like self-driving cars. And I watched all my students and postdocs pulling out and building companies. And I got roped into a company called Zooks. I was offered to co-found that company. I said no. And then I joined anyway three months later for a lot less equity. Really enjoyed the ride. Met a lot of wonderful people. Ended up leaving Zooks to start another company called Zippy, which was moving packages instead of people. Uh, the self-driving car problem is obviously very, very difficult, as it should be, you know, when you're potentially unleashing lethal machines into society at scale, the bar is very high. And I wanted to see, you know, kind of by life's work around fielding autonomous systems bring value, maybe a little quicker. And so that's why I started Zippy, because we could focus on moving packages instead of moving people. What I learned about that after having Instead of a business that was revenue generating, you know, doing deliveries for Postmates and DoorDash, is that the solution to sidewalk robotics is to use the roads. So it became a self-driving car company yet again. So I sold that company then to Cruise, to General Motors, which was great. I had a great time working at Cruise. I was there for, for six months and I was able to meet some really fantastic people. But ultimately, there were some folks from a previous life. I had been the PI on a DARPA grant and done some great work with uh, Moog. They're the folks that build the actuators for, you know, Boston Dynamics platforms, really world-class hydraulic servo actuators. They were like, hey, Sibley, you know what? We think ag is going to be a great place, a great vertical where all this technology and robotics is actually going to have a real impact. And we want you to meet this guy, Curtis. And so they introduced me to Curtis Garner, who's my co-founder. He's the, the farmer DNA in the business, easily the better half of the business. And so just some ex-research partners from DARPA introduced me to Curtis at Bar in San Jose. We looked at each other and realized we should get married and they should foot the bill. And they did. They were very generous, gave us our seed funding, got us started. They've been great partners. And I learned a lot about agriculture and a lot about how that technology could be applicable and helpful. And it's been a wild ride. Take us back to those conversations two and a half decades ago. I'm sure it had come up at some point in those conversations about self-driving cars and yeah, if they would be on the road. Like back then, did you think that by... 2023, it would be all self-driving vehicles on the roads. Like, did you guys talk about those types of things back then? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I still remember when Sebastian was, you know, pitching DARPA on the DARPA Grand Challenge and trying to get them motivated. And he was, you know, pitching the robotics community as well. Like, 
RSS 2005, and he was laying out the case why it would be a really valuable thing to do. And initially it seemed like, eh, maybe okay, but then ultimately got a lot of people's attention and there was clear that there could be a large impact. And so sometime around 2004, 2005, I think it really started to take off. And of course, long before that, you know, you had the nav lab work out of CMU and smart highway initiative in the early nineties in California. So there's been really a long history of people recognizing the value. I think the value is tremendous. I think it's hard to get there. It will take time. I think in a lot of ways, robotics is that way. It's not like a lot of SaaS technologies and investments that just happen very quickly. It's like sort of augmented reality and virtual reality are maybe 10 times harder than your normal software companies. I think robotics companies are sort of 10 times harder than that. But yeah, I mean, people understood that the value was there. And I think that people understood it was hard and that it would take time. And I think we're even seeing that now where things like ChatGPT are taking off largely because it's non-physical. And perhaps ironically, all those physical things that require, you know, dexterous mobile manipulation and mobile autonomy, any sort of physically instantiated thing is turning out to be very difficult to do. Sort of the dull, dangerous and dirty stuff that we thought would be automated first is harder than the tech-based stuff. Just being in the Bay Area, obviously a, a big story in the in the media, was it a month ago, was the cruise accident. And then I know cruise had, I think their permit pulled from the DMV. And then there's been a bunch of other drama that's followed. Do you have an opinion of what regulation should look like when it comes to self-driving cars? You know, I was very active while well, Zooks in helping getting the NHTSA policy for autonomous driving that was pushed nationally through. And honestly, I thought it was very thoughtful. It was a very thoughtful framework for how we could still encourage innovation while having, you know, responsible actors and people behave responsibly. I think it's a real tragedy what happened with Cruise, you know, especially they were not the cause of the accident, but the way that it unfolded, it was a clear long tail of it that, you know, it's a very sad thing to have happened. And so, yeah, it's not obviously not good. It's not good for the industry as a whole. Uh, not good for the people, humans involved. And yeah, I think that it's important that we do have legislation around these things that protect people. And I do think that the policy that came out of DC about a decade ago, a little little less than that, was very thoughtful. Yeah, I think the NHTSA self-driving car policy is good. I admit I've not explored that policy too much, but I'll have to uh, dive into that a bit more because I, I do want to understand this space a lot. And it, you know, from my perspective, and I know nothing about this, you know, seeing crews kind of get pulled off the streets immediately, like, I felt like that was an overreaction. Do you think that was not an overreaction? I mean, I, I'm not super intimate in terms of the details. I'm not so sure it was an overreaction or if they misstepped in terms of their relationship with the regulators. I really don't know what happened. Uh, I can tell you that bad things will happen in the deployment of new technologies. And a lot of the reaction you're going to get from regulators, groups of humans that are trying to keep it safe, how you handle it when it does happen. So who knows what really happened, but like everybody knows that there's going to be bad things happening or there's going to be risk that we have to accept. And I think if you look at the number of miles driven by these systems overall, if you were to look at the integral of miles driven by Google and you know Aurora and Zooks and Cruise and the number of incidents, you know, you're still looking at something that's pretty safe. I don't remember how long ago it was now, but I do remember when Richard Branson's company, Virgin Galactic, had that crash, and I think two of the pilots died. And he came out with a heartfelt statement, of course, you know, for the tragedy that happened. But he also had a really strong message around, like, this is the cost of innovation. And when you're innovating on the edge like this, like, it, it is bound to happen, unfortunately. But the risk of, like, 
not pushing the limits here and trying to innovate is you know, more than these types of accidents that can happen. And I, I thought that was a very good way to try to cover everything and you know, still you know, make the case for like, we don't need to shut this whole thing down. All this doesn't need to stop. Like we do need to continue and we do need to continue innovation. And for some reason, that's always uh, stuck with me. Yeah, I tend to agree, right? As long as the, uh, the risks are understood by everybody involved and everyone is willing to let it happen, you're bad. Switching gears here a little bit, and the goal here is really just to better understand a bit more about what makes you tick behind the scenes. Uh, first question for you is about founders that inspire you. So obviously we have some easy answers like Elon Musk perhaps or Jeff Bezos, but let's dig a little bit deeper. Who's a founder that's really inspired you along the way? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I was thinking about it. I don't have like a, a blanket answer. I can certainly say that there are things that I've seen that have been inspiring. Of course, you know, the same person may have done things that I thought were cuckoo otherwise. So in many ways, I think uh, Tim Kentley Clay at Zooks was inspiring. I also learned a bunch from Jesse Levinson. Those two, you know, obviously convinced me to leave my life as a professor and move to Silicon Valley. And I absolutely enjoyed that ride. My current co-founder, Curtis Garner is somebody who I deeply respect. You know, he has a, an ability to just be a rock. He's just a high integrity, super solid individual. And I really appreciate that, especially, you know, when we're in the trenches together, he just has a tendency to, you know, help shine light in the right direction at the right time in a way that's just super helpful. So I really appreciate Curtis. What about books? And the way we like to frame this, it comes from an author named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core and really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind? Yeah. I mean, there's two books that I think of and they're, you know, one I read a long time ago and one that I read more recently. You know, I like the the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and I know it doesn't speak to everybody, but I certainly appreciate it. The notion of quality. And that virtue sort of hard work and mastery of craft and sort of pride in doing a job and doing it well. And just for the fact that you do it well, that reward from being good at something, whether it's like a physical thing, like a turn done well as a ski racer or, uh, you know, a pitch that you executed flawlessly and you just walk out, you know, feeling great, whether you, you know, win or not, just the fact that you left it all on the floor and you're proud of yourself. So that book, I think, speaks to that. And I really appreciate that. I try to get my employees to read it, not always successfully, but I think it's a great book. And so long ago, I was impressed with that book and it's been something that I touched time and again. And more recently, I read Cadillac Desert, which is fantastic. And that really talks about water in the West of the United States and North America generally, and how, how precious it is and how little of it there is and how much phenomenal engineering we've done specifically here in California, the two largest hydrology engineering projects in the world so that we can grow so much food and have such big cities and how it, just important it is for us to safeguard the health of the water, hopefully the health of the soil and all of our health and just how crazy and political and complicated and just really you know, convoluted and interesting the history of water is here in the West. And it continues to be, you know, you know, if you've ever seen uh, Chinatown, you know, Mulholland Drive, the history of water in California is like stupendously interesting and stupendously important. And it relates to the world that I'm in now around farming very efficiently, using inputs super efficiently, and ultimately, you know, cherishing the soil that we grow food on and the water that we do it with. I find really interesting how those things are all tied together. And then the, the people that make the choices around these things, how I get to interact with them and work with them. It's been super interesting. 
you just set it up for a perfect transition into talking about what you're doing. So let's dive in. When it comes to the problem that you're solving, how do you define that problem and describe that problem? I'd say if you were to try to boil it down to something super simple, it's we do more with less. So how do you grow greater yielding crops, a larger produce using less inputs, more cost-effective labor? You know, ag is big. Ag is 5% of world GDP. In the U.S., about a quarter of the spend happens in California. So California is phenomenally productive. And the biggest cost in agriculture are chemical inputs and human labor. And in the next 50 years, we've got to grow more food than we've grown, you know, by some accounts in the last 10,000 years. At the same time where there's this incredible increase in demand for productivity, the folks that have done the field work, they're exiting states left to work at Starbucks and call centers and click farms and data centers. And, you know, good for them. And there are zero five-year-olds that said, when I grow up, I want to crawl on my hands and knees in 120 degree weather in the dirt and thick weeds. It's just not a job that people aspire to. And that does not denigrate people's hard work. Hard work is very real and valuable. But, you know, it's a task that's frankly a robotic task. And so when you can use technology that makes things, you know, not just twice as cost effective or 10 times as cost effective, but maybe 100 times, two orders of magnitude more cost effective, literally taking something that costs $3,000 an acre and doing it for $30 an acre through technology, that's a major gain in efficiency. And that's how you do more with less. So ultimately, that's that's it. We're about helping growers save on inputs and save on labor so they can do more with less through technology. And what are the growers getting then? Is it a robot tractor or, or what is the actual product and what does that solution look like? Yeah, we have a smart sprayer with what we call bullseye technology. So basically, it's, you know, atoms on target delivering with like an aimable squirt gun, the inputs that plants need to grow the way agronomists would like them to grow. So imagine like a smart sharpshooter that rides along the back of a tractor and you know, puts a BB of the right input at the right place, whether that's, you know, pollen or fertilizer or organic herbicide to help a plant or a field do what the growers want. So it's the intelligent machine that rides along the back of a tractor. So it's an implement that clicks on the back of a tractor. And it's that intelligent sharpshooter that rides along on the back, putting the atoms where they need to be. I'm probably revealing myself here that I haven't spent a lot of time on farms, but can it hook up to any type of tractor or is it only a specific type of tractor? What does that look like? Yeah, we can hook up to any type of tractor. So it's just a generic three-point hitch. So it'll click to a red one, a green one, a blue one, an autonomous mobile one, you name it. In fact, really, it can go on anything. It's ultimately about the size of a 40-ounce can. And so... It can go on center pivots. It can go on 120 foot booms behind tractors in the Midwest driving 20 miles an hour. So it's the pure vision and machine learning sees and understands the field and then makes those decisions real time about what to spray, when and where. And again, that sort of millimeter accuracy and leaving, you know, if we want a dollop of liquid about the size of your pinky nail on target, or, you know, we can cover something the size of a dare plate uh, all programmatically in real time. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. What does this world of farming look like 20 years from now? Are all of the 
the humans that were doing this type of physical labor, do you think they're just, they're gone? Oh, no way. I mean, this is just a tool, you know, it gives humans a superpower to do more. Uh, so this is just a tool to give agronomists and growers the ability to have a bigger impact. I think it looks a lot more systematic and that people can call up a digital model of their farm at any time during the course of the season or the past 10 seasons and start to mine that digital twin that's you know spatial and temporal and semantic and that holds all of the classification data from all machine learning for trends, you know, being a correlate and compare and search for better policies on how to grow more effectively. And I think that systematic digitization and proactive search for better growing policies is something that's really been possible at these super precise scales and also over large scales, because really the sensors haven't made it out into the field at this, this resolution being coupled with the actuators at this resolution. And so like many industries, really all industries that have gone through a transformation or with respect to computation that when you bring computation to bear, it is this genuine superpower. You know, computers can count billions of things per acre. They just don't care. That's in their wheelhouse. And this is fundamentally not in our wheelhouse as human being. And so just like all these industries have been transformed by computation, ag is going to be transformed by it as well. And there's great efficiencies there. So I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, more wealthy farmers with much healthier food and much healthier consumers of the food, much healthier soil. When it comes to these farms, how is it distributed? Is it mostly like big corporate owners or like private equity firms called ABC Holdings that own it all? Or is a lot of it still independent growers and independent farmers? There's lots of little farms. And then there's a small number of very large conglomerates, big farms that control sort of majority of the acres. And it really depends on what crop you're talking about. But every crop will have a few big players that are the you know, sort of 800 pound gorillas in the room that'll have the you know, majority of the acres. But there's still lots of little farms in the U.S., right? Which of those groups are you selling to? All of them. You know, initially we were running our offering as a service and we still have that ability. But the bigger growers really would like to buy. And so we're very happy to sell to them. But there's no restriction on who we will work with. We're very happy to work with anybody. You know, when the customer says we want to pay for it like X, you say, okay. When they pay for it like Y, you say, okay. What are the top questions that customers have that maybe get in the way of them buying and investing in something so innovative like this? The customers I've found in my experience are chomping at the bit. So they're actually demanding the technology kind of well ahead of where I expected they would be. Um, we're really being pulled by the nose and we're more supply limited than we are demand limited. So they've seen the technology, they've seen it work. And the answer is usually, uh, okay, when can I buy them and when can I have more? And so it's really just up to us to basically deliver a reliable product that performs at the level we're able to show day in and day out. It's a good problem to have, but how did you get in this place to start with? How do you have such high demand? Is it your track record and your credibility and the fact that the product's working? Or what have you gotten right to have demand not be an issue? So that's a really good question. You know, we spent the first six months of this business on the road, listening to growers, really me, you know, Curtis trying to educate Google around what the needs are and what the farmer's needs are. And it was a two-way dialogue, right? I was trying to pique people's imagination around what was technically possible, but at the same time, really listening to try and understand one of the problems that you actually face. Yeah, it's kind of funny. A farmer would say, you know, oh God, if you could just do X, that would be amazing, it'd be great. I'd be like, well, you know, that's science fiction. We cannot do that. Or they would say, well, you probably can't do Y 
but it'd be kind of cool. Well, hang on a second. We might be able to do that. And so the conversation back and forth with growers was, it was stupendously important. There was a number of aha moments where we recognized, hey, we're sort of uniquely well-suited to do that. Technically, it's a very defensible play for us to do that. And there's a lot of value for the grower if we can pull it off. And so that that match of something that you know, you're good at, that you're out in the front of the rest of the world on, you know is going to be really valuable for the customer, getting to know your customer. You know, like why I say Curtis is the better half of the company. He's a farmer and he knows the people I need to talk to. And so, you know, the two of us spent a lot of time listening and talking to our customer. I mean, that's kind of business school one on one on one, but it's very true. Go into business with somebody that knows the market deeply and is respected in the market that you want to be in. Uh, I don't know how you would do it otherwise, to be honest. I think there's a stereotype that farmers are maybe not super tech savvy, but from my conversation with another founder who's in a similar space that you're in here, he told me that stereotype is completely untrue and that from what he's seen, farmers tend to be like almost the ultimate early adopters. Is that something that you've seen as well? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you can swear on your program, but that's it's bullshit. <laughs> you know, gr- growers are totally switched on businessmen, right? Like they run very complicated businesses. I've never seen a business that's more sort of econ 101 in terms of supply and demand and the quickness that these guys have to act. And so, yeah, they're uh, totally aware of anything and everything that can help them do their job better. And they're typically the ones chopping at the bit and asking for it before people have done it. So my experience is like water flows downhill. You know, if you can prove that there's value, they're in. And there's no convincing needed because they're clever and they understand what's happening. Did you get your messaging and positioning right immediately then it sounds like? No, certainly not. I think we wanted to run it as a service. You know, as a service, it looks really good. And the growers want it as something they can buy. You know, that's the model they're used to. They understand total cost of ownership and they're very used to financing large capital equipment purchases anyway. So it makes a lot of sense for the way that they operate. My co-founder had operated, you know, the largest tomato operation in the world. So he knew what running a service was like. We thought, okay, we'll try and run it as a service. And I think that ultimately that was, I wouldn't say a mistake, but it's not the fastest path to market because there's still, there's still value in running it as a service for smaller growers that might not want to buy their kit outright. Was it hard making that decision to shut down that revenue stream? Not really. I mean, I just remember a very large customer saying, uh, basically, we're not going to rent it, but we'll buy it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, like I said, if the customer wants it like X, you say, okay. They want it like Y, you say, okay. You know, it's the, ultimately, the value is there and how you get that in the hands of the growers almost doesn't matter. How do you think about your marketing philosophy? You know, like I said, it's really been us being pulled by the nose. So it's not like I've done a lot of marketing. I mean, Curtis has been my one-man BD team. Uh, He knows the industry we're in. He knows a lot of the right people. And we've just been trying to catch up with people asking for us to help them. That'll probably change. And it's going to be, I think, pretty organic. You know, trade shows and industry rags, going to meetings where you're going to spend time with the growers you want to work with. And then distribution partners, that's going to matter for scale. And so a lot of... A lot of marketing will take place that way. How do you think about the competitive landscape? Is your competitor going to be another robotics company or is the competitor really just the status quo? No, the competitor is not the status quo. I mean, the status quo is just incredibly inefficient. I mean, really ultimately incredibly inhumane. So things will change, you know, whether it's not us 
whether Sasha does it or not, it will change. So I do think it's going to be so either a robotics or, you know, a company that's purchased a robotics company or actually like a um, chemical retail company or a big ag company. So it's somebody that's in ag or in, you know, chemistry business. So yeah, that's basically roboticist. It's a very technical problem. Makes sense. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised 48 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? So I think I've been very fortunate in that, you know, there's so many things that are aligned with my business. It's technically a very interesting thing to do. It's also a very impactful thing to do and that it's beneficial for the planet if we do it. It's good for the farmer's pocketbook. And so this has this ability to attract really interesting people and really interesting investors and advisors. And so, you know, everybody's so deeply aligned that it makes it a lot of fun. You know, I like my board. I like my investors. They're people I'd spend time with that I count as friends. And if I ever built another company, I would go about it the same. I'd be very careful of who I choose to work with because I'd want to make that working relationship be farmer, you know, have people you want to work with. Been very fortunate and that's where we're at now. Because I don't know, I see a lot of advice for founders that's kind of like adversarial to investors and to how you treat your board. And I think that's kind of crazy, actually. If you really think about it, your interests are totally aligned. You just want to succeed. And if you do your job as, as a founder and you find investors that are really aligned with you, that really can help you have connections and relationships that can help you, well, if you're all just really working together, might as well do it with people that you like working with because I mean, it's all very good stuff that you're attempting to do. Yeah. Work with people that are good people you want to work with. Let's imagine you're sitting down for coffee with a young founder who wants to build technology, not technology that competes with you, but sells to farmers and, and sells to growers. Based on everything you've learned so far, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd have to give them? Uh, get out early and sell it as early as you can so you can get some scar tissue. Just start getting scar tissue from your customer fast as you possibly can. Love it. All right. Final question for you before we wrap up. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision look like? I would love to be helping growers farm efficiently for as many of them as we possibly can. You know, the types of efficiencies are pretty awesome. And so that's a, it's a pretty neat thing to stand on the cusp of. You know, the more sustainable, healthy, you know, healthy pocketbook, healthy soil, healthy food that we can impact, the better. So... Ideally, we've built an iconic robotics technology company that's farming sustainably for as much of humanity as we can pull off. Amazing. I love the vision and I really love this conversation. It's been a lot of fun and I've definitely learned a lot. I know the audience is going to learn a lot as well. Before we wrap up, if there's any founders that are listening in that want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Yeah, go to burdenrobotics.com. You know, you just can reach out and connect with us there or on LinkedIn, you know, we are headed down, making it work right now. If you're in California, you know, you may see us on the side of the road, just look out the window. And if you see a, a white verdant vehicle clipped to the back of a tractor, that's us. Awesome, Gabe. I'll be on the lookout. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. Take care. All right, keep it dense. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.